you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 4 as we continue on in our series Life in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John that we've been in for several months now. And again, as we've been going through each ser- sermon, we've been asking ourselves the question of, uh, it's really the theme of First John, where John wrote in First John chapter 5, verse 13, that he's written these things to those who believe in the Son of God, that they may have the assurance of eternal life. And that's really the uh, primary question that we've been asking through every sermon as we've been going through First John. Uh, what assurances is God, does God's word give me that I have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in me. I've professed my faith in Jesus Christ, but how do I know that that's real? How do I know that God's eternal life is not just a promise for eternity, but his eternal life has come to me now? And both are important. And so we've been looking at different assurances uh, through the first four chapters of 1 John. And... Uh, One of the assurances that we've been looking at is a love for God and a love for other believers. A love for God and a love for other believers. John has mentioned this before, and today's passage in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 21, is really going to focus on those two areas of love. Loving God, God's love for us, and our love for the body of Christ. The Apostle John was the Apostle of love. He's described as uh, the one that Jesus loved. I mean, especially, I think Jesus had a, a very special heart for John. John spoke on the theme of love more than any other Apostle. Certainly the other Apostles spoke about love. But John, as he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation, um, the theme of love is throughout his writings. A lot of Christians think of, when they think of love, they think of 1st Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul talks about a description of what love is. You know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not boast, etc., Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And they tend to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and say, that's my favorite passage to describe love. And it's a beautiful passage. But I actually think the passage that we're going to look at today, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 21, this is actually my favorite passage on the topic of love in all of Scripture. I think it's the absolute best description because it involves God, it's Christ-centered, it involves the Holy Spirit, uh, it involves um, the commands of God, and so it's kind of, and, and the body of Christ. So it's kind of all there, as well as the world, contrasting that with the world. So this is my favorite passage of love in the entire sweep of Scripture. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go through this verse by verse, sequentially. Um, if I was to write this passage, kind of reordering these verses, I probably would have ordered it in a different way. But thankfully, I wasn't chosen to write this. God had his reasons that are far above mine. Um, and so it's going to kind of say something. It's going to go over here. It's going to go over here. Then it's going to return back here. Then it's going to go over here. But uh, we're just going to trust God's sovereignty in that, laying that out the way it is. He talks about love. So let's stand now. And 
he wants to hear too, apparently. And let's uh, hear the Word of God, the reading of God's Word in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 21. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we all also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this is, but this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he As he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together. God, today, that is our desire, is to be obedient to that command, to love you and to love our brother and sister. And we recognize that it's not by our own will. Our own will is self-serving. But that is only because the love of God, we abide in the love of God, that you loved us before we loved you, and you've given to us the capacity to love through Christ and the Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts. And so, Lord, may you um, renew our minds and increase our understanding of what a biblical understanding of what love is, how it works in our lives coming from you, um, so that we may be greater lovers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. So we're going to take a look at this biblical definition of love, God's love for us, our love for God, God, um, our love for other believers, how it changes us. And it's very different, this definition of love, from the world's definition of love. The world would never define love in the way that Scripture defines love. The world does not define love for God in the same way that God defines love for God. The world does not define love for other people in the same way the scriptures define love for the body of Christ. The world defines love as romance. The world defines love as lust. The world defines love as whatever we idolize we love. 
The world defines love as we love ourselves. Those are the worldly definitions of love. Romance, lust, idolatry, self-love. And so today, we're going to be reminded of God's definition involving the Trinity, involving the Word of God, involving the church, and involving us in love. So let's take a look. In verse 7 and verse 8, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For this love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's stop there. He says we are to love one another. And if we do, it shows that we've been born of God. We know God. And if you don't, uh, you don't know God because the definition of God is that God is love. God is love. He says that we are to love one another. Remember that phrase, one another, comes from the Greek, alalon which theologically means whenever you see one another, although it's used sometimes to refer to the crowd, unbelieving crowds, uh, the theological meaning and the biblical meaning when it, it says one another is really one believer to another believer. So love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, correct one another. All refers one believer to one another. And so we as believers are to love other believers. How? John gave us a definition earlier on in 1 John chapter 3 uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago. He says in 1 John chapter 3 that uh, if you, verse 17 and verse 18, he says, you know, if you have the world's goods, 1 John 3, 17 and 18, if you have the world's goods and see your brother, other believer in need, but you close your heart to him, you don't have God's love. Let's love not just in word and talk, but in deed and truth. So this is the way John himself has defined love for one another. He says, if you see another believer in need, and you have what they need, don't delay. Give it to them. Don't just say, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you, as John, as the writer James says. Uh, but we are to um, not tell our neighbor to go away and come, uh, come back if we have it with us now to help them. Proverbs chapter 3. John says that if we have what another brother needs, we are to give it. We are to give it. Um, you are part of a church that loves one another. I could go on and on of examples, just recent examples, uh, let alone dozens, if not hundreds, over the years that we've been gathering together. Um, recently, um, some of you who have been giving faithfully to the Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 fund that we established two years ago, uh, about a year and a half ago um, during COVID. This is a fund that our church uh, has invited people to give to outside of their normal offerings that will be 100% distributed to believers who are in need. And we have done that. We've probably given away, I don't know, uh, 20000 maybe more dollars so far. And recently, uh, someone needed um, some car repairs for their car, and we just sent them out 600 bucks from that fund just on a moment's notice the next day that we were made uh, aware of it. And that was, if you have the world's goods, help your brother. And if you contribute to that fund, that is one of the good things that has come from that. Um, we have helped others who have been in distress as well to provide um, some services for them that have comforted them in their anxiety through the Galatians Fund. 
Um, I know that many, many of you women have uh, loved other women by being there for them. And maybe it's not just directly to provide goods. In some ways it has, but to be there, to fellowship, to serve, to love, to sacrifice, to listen to, to pray for. There are many, many women in this church um, that have loved other believers, showing that the love of God is present in their lives and in this church. I know that there are many men in this church that have helped other uh, men, multiple men in crisis, um, and that is loving one another. Uh, Lorraine talked about um, helping out the, uh, the believers at Hope Gardens and Olive Crest. We could go on and on. This is a church that is obedient to verse 7 and verse 8, to love one believer to another. And in these verses, I want you to notice, he says, if you love one another, it's a sign that you have been born of God, verse 7, that you know God, verse 7. When believers truly love one another. The implication is that that is where God is. You know God. God is real. God's spirit is moving through you loving another believer. It's a terrible thing. It's an awful thing to be part of a church that says we believe in love, but there's no tangible demonstration of that amidst their midst from believer to one another. It's just a doctrine then. It's not a spiritual reality. Our church has the doctrine, and we also have the spirituality of God being present. We are born of God. We know God. It's a beautiful thing. He says that, um, end of verse 8, God is love. And then you go on to verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Let's stop there. Last part of verse 8, first part of verse 9. God is love, and he's saying God's love has been manifest among us. Now let's just stop there before he defines how God's love has been manifest. If the world was to read this line, the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9, God is love, and his love has been manifest among us. How would the world define uh that definition, God is love, his love is manifest. What the world would say would be this. Oh, of course God is love. Of course his love has been manifest among us. How do I know that? I know that because God loves me just the way I am. That's how the world looks at God's love. It says, yeah, I have no problem saying God is love. He loves me just the way I am. He doesn't want me to change. He loves me just the way I am. Instead of God loves me just the way I am, and, and he, but he loves me too much to keep me the way I am. The world says, God loves me just the way I am. And the world also says, God loves me so much that he wants to help me to become the person I want to become. God loves me so much that, of course, he wants to help me achieve my dreams for my own life. Who wouldn't love that kind of God? And so when the world reads, the world's definition of God is love and his love was made manifest, that is their two primary fallen definitions of God's love. And so I love this because John 
clarifies what God is talking about when he says, I am love. When he says, when it says that God is love. God is love is an esoteric phrase that the rank pagan can give lip service to. That doesn't mean anything. God is love. You can be a complete unbeliever and think God is love because you're defining God how you want. You're defining love how you want. So what John does in verse 9, second part, and going into verse 10, is he actually defines love in the best possible way. With all respect to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, I do not believe 1 Corinthians 13 is the best definition of love. It's a beautiful definition of love as uh, a biblical concept and a biblical reality. But it doesn't really focus specifically um, on the work of Christ as the expression of God's love. And that's why I like 1 John 4. And so he says in the second part of verse 9, how was God's love manifest among us? The first definition is that he sent Jesus Christ in the second part of verse 9 into the world, the Son of God into the world, so that we might, what? Live through him. That's the first definition of God's love. God's love was shown to us because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Why? So that we might live through him. We might live through him. This is why uh, John said decades earlier in the Gospel of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have eternal life who? Through Jesus Christ. Notice this, verse 9. We might live through him. Why is living through Jesus so important? The human soul does not need therapy. It does not need a regiment for wellness. It does not need more positivity thinking. It does not even need primarily to be medicated. Sometimes you might need medication. There are some aspects of practical elements of wellness that uh, might be helpful. Some therapy might provide some practical um, but not spiritual um, help. But the human soul does not primarily need therapy, wellness, positivity, or medication. Because the human soul does not need to be repaired or restored. The human soul needs to be replaced. And that's the theological meaning of live through him. The human soul is damaged. It's in a, in a, it's in a, a state of permanent disrepair. That's what sin does to it. It devastates it. That was what John Calvin said, the great reformer. He saw the human soul not as something that was simply um, in, in, a, in, a, in a state where it, it kind of just needs to be um, helped up a little bit, uh, healed a little bit. No, he, he, his view was that the human soul needs to literally be recreated. That's why when you look at Paul's writing in first, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says that uh, we are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. That Greek word new had the idea of not just repair and restore, it had the idea of complete replacement, a complete rebirth. 
See, a theology of love tells us that the human soul needs to be completely reborn. Why? Because the human soul, in its unregenerate state, is evil. It is self-absorbed. It is full of pride, greed, lust, and foolishness. That is who every one of us was before we came to profess faith. That is who every child is the moment they come out of the womb. Oh, they're so beautiful. They're my child. You know, I'm going to love you and stuff. Uh, But you know, the only thing that keeps that child from murdering you to get what they want is they just don't have the physical or mental capacity. We think, oh, they're crying. Oh, they're so cute. No, they're just completely self-absorbed. And we all were. But that's what's happening spiritually. And the only explanation for any good that could possibly be ascribed to us from a human standard is just God's common grace that he gives to the human spirit in its fallen state uh, to keep us from tearing apart one another to get what we want. That's why we have laws. That's why we have social community to stop us from... If you didn't have laws, if you didn't have a community of people that would just kind of look down upon you or punish you, and you had free reign to do whatever you want with no rules, a lot of us would do that. No consequences, no rules, because that's who we are. And so this is why, this is why Jesus has to live through us. Because we can't live through ourselves. It's uh, a dark path. He goes on to say this in verse 10. Verse, uh, first part of verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Let's stop there. This is love. Not that we have loved God. And then to clarify that if you skip on down to verse 19, we love because he first loved us. What is John saying here in verse 10? We didn't love God. Verse 19, it was him who first loved us. It was him who first loved us. God, Bible says God created us. He was the one who first loved us. He is the one who chose us. He is the one who saved us. He is the one who sanctified us. He is the one who will one day glorify us. It all starts with God. Now, some people have a problem with that. Oh, you know, it's, it, it was me that chose God. God didn't choose me. And, and maybe God just like, you know, foresaw that I would choose him and then went back and then chose me based upon my choice. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you're chosen, elect, predestined. Our salvation from start to finish is God's work. Now, do we participate in that in some way by choosing By human volition, yes, we do. That's obvious. But in the overall scope, it starts and begins with God. And I actually think I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'll tell you why. The older you get, the more responsibility you take on in life. The older you get, the more you recognize the the fallenness of the world. The older you get, the more you can really identify with Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes where there's a sorrow to his life. There's a depth of experience where he's seen the highs and the lows. 
And uh, I think one of the things that crushed Solomon back into faith, where he would finally come to the place, say all of life is vanity outside of knowing God, is that he realized, you know, I, the human soul is not designed to have the capacity to make ultimate choices on its own. That's why we need God. That's the way God made it. There is no more ultimate choice than to say, Chris, I am ultimately responsible for my eternal salvation by my own choice. And then God just responds to that. And that creates madness. If Solomon couldn't handle the madness of having everything he wanted in life, there is no way the human soul can handle the madness of having all power to determine your own salvation or not. See, I need God as my heavenly father to determine that. That is too far a weighty responsibility for me. I would go mad. I would go mad knowing that if your salvation was completely determined by what I did or didn't do, I couldn't handle that responsibility. No, I need God. And it's not true because I need it. It's true because it's true, but because it's true, it shows that I need it. And so God loved us first, we didn't love him. Verse 10, part B. Uh, he says, and this is the second definition of God's love. Not only did Jesus come so that we could live through him, he says in the second part of verse 10, he loved us and he sent his son, secondly, not just to live through us, verse 9, but verse 10, to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation, uh, translation of the word propitiation is the word satisfaction of our sins. God showed his love to us so that Jesus could live through us. Part one, part two, God showed his love to us so that Jesus could be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. What does he mean by the propitiation for our sins? Uh, or For many years, early church, even into uh, the dark ages, theologians would read this uh, phrase, the propitiation for our sins, and they would translate that. They would look at that theologically and say, well, who is being satisfied? Who are, is who is the propitiation for our sins directed towards? And they would look at that and say, well, well, it's Satan. Okay, so uh, what happened was uh, when we were fallen in the Garden of Eden and then we had that sin transferred to us across time and space through Ad, the sin of Adam, Romans chapter 5, that now we owe a debt. Sin is defined as a debt. That's one of the primary ways it's defined in the New Testament. We owe a debt to someone. Someone has to be satisfied. There has to be propitiation for our sins, a debt that has to be paid back. To who? Answer, a lot of early theologians said to Satan. Satan has a title deed to us. Jesus came to release us from that, to ransom us from Satan. C.S. Lewis plays that out in... Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know the scene. Um, the, the witch is there. She has Edmund. Edmund eats, you know, the uh, Turkish delight. She kind of is in control of him. He's basically given his soul to the, to the wicked witch and uh, queen. And, um, and then all of a sudden, she, she's like, he's mine. He's mine. And all of a sudden, Aslan shows up. And he says, no, take me. Take me. You let Edmund go. 
I will give myself as a sacrifice. The, the wicked queen sacrifices Aslan, and as you know, he comes back to life. That's the ransom theory. That's the theory of uh, the law theologian said, uh, Jesus Christ, or Aslan in this example, came to the queen, which was Satan, and ransomed us, Edmund, that's us. And so he had to do that to free us from the, the, the claim that Satan had over our lives. That was C.S. Lewis, a lot of theologians. And uh, what the reformers realized is, no, that there might be some general truth to that, but that's not really who the true propitiation is. That's not really who had to be satisfied. Who had to be satisfied was not Satan. It was God. And so what the reformers realized was they said, no, the true propitiation, the true satisfaction that has to be done in the atoning work of Christ is to God. It is God's law that has been broken. It is God's judgment that must be appeased. It is God's wrath that must be redirected to Christ. And so Christ is the propitiation to God first. And that's what we all need, isn't it? God's definition of love is that he has given his son as an expression of love to die on a cross to primarily satisfy his need for wrath, for sin. God's definition of love is that he looked into the human soul and said, this will never be restored, this will never be repaired, it has to be reborn, it has to be replaced with a new life through Christ. God's ultimate expression of love. That is the theologically the best definition of God's love you're going to find in Scripture. Verse 11 and 12. Now, out of that, he says, um, if we love God, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, one believer to another. Verse 12, we haven't seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. We're to love one another. And as we do, God's love is perfected in you. There's no greater perfecting, sanctifying influence in your life than God's love. Nothing. Follow me on this. This is why it is important to be in community in the church. If you're in community in the church, you have the opportunity to both give and receive love from other believers. When you are in community in the church and you give and receive love from to and with other believers, you are then, verse 12, perfected in love. That word perfected in the Greek can also be translated to be matured in love, to bring to completion. And completion in who? In Christ. There is a sanctifying element to being in community with the body of Christ. You receive love. You give love. And as that happens, God uses you to perfect other believers. God uses other believers to perfect you in Christ because the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives in them and as they love you, God is loving you. As you, the Holy Spirit is new, is loving other believers, the Holy Spirit is loving other believers and there is a spiritual transformation that happens in your spirit when you are outside the body of Christ, when you are a Lone Ranger Christian, when you are saying, I can believe but not be in community. 
you are hurting yourself. The sanctifying, perfecting, verse 12, aspect of God's love is stopped because we're not loving one another. And so you want to be in community with the body of Christ. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I've come to church and, you know, I'm just like you in some ways. I mean, I'm going to be here because, you know, I'm a pastor. But, ah, it'd be so great to sleep in. Oh, it'd be so great to just do this other thing. And, okay, fine. We go on vacation sometimes. That's fine. I'm not saying that. We go, we travel for business. That's fine. I'm not talking about that. You know, something comes up on a great occasion, maybe. Uh, but in general, in general is what I'm talking about. And then when I've said, no, I gotta, I, I should go. I should be there. And God sanctifies me through you. And I trust you through me. And he does something unexpected. Maybe it's a conversation I didn't expect to have. Maybe it's someone saying, I'll pray for you. And they pray for me. Maybe God makes us aware of a need, like, uh, you know, love your brother by sharing what you have. And I say, that's why God had me here. And uh, I recognize, okay, God is at work here. God has not given up on me. God loves me. And you miss out on that. You miss out on that when you're not around. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and him in us because he has given us the spirit. He's given us the spirit. I love, again, this passage because he's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the spirit. He's given us his spirit. John talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. In, in the Gospel of John, in 1 John, among other places, um, there's a lot of descriptions throughout the New Testament about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't have time to, to go through that exhaustively, but John specifically talks, and here's some of the highlights of what the Spirit does. John chapter 3, John says that the Spirit works in us to cause us to be born again in faith. The Spirit works in us, John 3, so that we can enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 14, the Spirit comes to us through faith, and he doesn't leave us like spiritual orphans. He comes to us, John 14 again, as the helper to help us to live in a way that is uh, worthy of God and as children of God. John 14, again, that the Spirit's work is to bring remembrance to the words of Jesus in our lives. First John chapter 3, the Spirit's work is to help us to keep the commands of God. God. First John chapter 4, the Spirit's work is to uh, move us to confess belief in Jesus Christ. First John 4, again, the Spirit's work is to help us to discern the truth from error. The Spirit has all of this work. It is a work in our lives. It's not just God. It's not just Jesus. It's not just the Word. It's the Spirit who works through the Word. It's the Spirit who brings us to Jesus. It's the Spirit by which we know God. Verse 14 says, We have seen, we've testified 
the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, world, world. John is saying he's seen and he's testified to Jesus. If you go back to 1 John chapter 1, this is exactly what John has already told us at the beginning of his epistle. He said that we, we have heard Jesus, we have seen Jesus, we have looked upon Jesus, we have touched Jesus. He was an eyewitness. He knew what he was talking about. We can trust him. Verse 15 to uh, the beginning of verse 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we confess that Jesus is God. First part of verse 16. Uh, So we have come to know him and to believe the love that God has for us. John talks about in verse 15 in the first part of verse 16. We confess Jesus. We know him. We believe in him. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. Um, verse 9 and 10. We, we say this, these verses at every baptism service. Every time I lead someone to Christ, to a profession of faith in Christ, uh, I always quote these verses. These verses you should know by heart. You should um, commit these verses to as part of your scripture uh, memory repertoire. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Going back to 1 John chapter 4, when he says in verse 15 and 16 that we confess Jesus, we know and we believe. This is salvation. Is a person willing to confess, to believe, to know that Jesus Christ, according to Romans 10, has risen from the dead? Are they willing to believe and to confess and to know that Jesus is Lord in their life? That's what Paul is saying in Romans 10. These are the two distinguishing um, marks of a profession of faith, Paul says in Romans 10. Do you submit to Jesus as Lord? Not me. I'm not Lord anymore. Not Lord of my life. Satan is not the Lord of my life. My girlfriend or boyfriend is not the Lord of my life. Money is not the Lord of my life. Okay? My dreams for my life is not the Lord of my life. My kids are not the Lord of my life. My spouse is not the Lord of my life. Jesus is the Lord. If he commands it, I'm duty-bound to obey. Because I'm his servant. I'm actually a slave. And secondly, do you confess that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead? When you confess that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead, what you're saying is two things. First, you're saying Jesus Christ in his resurrection has conquered death so that we can live. And you're saying Jesus Christ has conquered sin. It doesn't have power over him. And you're also saying actually a third thing, which is now that my belief that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead... I believe in through my profession of faith, Jesus lives in me. His eternal life, both now and in eternity, is a reality. That is salvation. 
So in verse 16, part B, he says, God is love. Again, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Let's stop there. He talks about that we are to abide in God and God is love. So we're to abide in God's love. And if we abide in God, if we, that Greek word abide had the, in the Greek means to remain. If we remain in God, God remains in us. And his love does as well, right? Abiding, remaining in God as a sign that God abides and remains in us. This is why John wrote decades earlier in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. Uh, he Well, he's actually quoting Jesus in the upper room in John 15. And Jesus there said, uh, you know, if you don't abide in me, you can't bear fruit. If you don't, if you abide in me, Jesus said in John 15, and I'm paraphrasing, I will prune you. I will prune the sinful attitudes and habits and behaviors and beliefs in your life. You won't like it at the time. Might even be painful. We don't like to be pruned because it involves sacrifice, it involves loss, it involves, you know, the downfall of our idols and, and submission. We, you know, that's often not a pleasant experience. But he says, if I prune you, you'll be what? In John 15, more fruitful, more fruitful. That's what happens when you abide in, in Christ. You abide in God. He prunes you, you become more fruitful. Abiding is remaining in God. Abiding is enduring in God. Abiding is persevering in God. Are you persevering in God? Are you enduring in God? How hard is life for many of you right now? Is there anyone among us right now who doesn't spend a significant amount of their time during their day worrying, having anxiety, thinking about the suffering in their life, the uncertainty. I mean, if, if, if you don't deal with that, maybe you should come up here and give the sermon. You know, I'll step aside, right? You're better than I am. But in the Christian faith, here's what I've come to realize, you guys. Um, we have all these worries and sufferings and fears and it can cause us to waver. We all go through wavering in our faith. There's not a person among us. You might be fine right now. You may look good on the outside, but there will come a season where you're going to waver. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it'll happen. It's just not your season. And I say that because, oh, well, yeah, now you know how the rest of us feel. I say that because that's part of the way it works. Because if we don't go through that, we, we forget God. God allows that into our lives. It's not pleasant, but we waver. Okay? But you must abide. You must remain. God didn't promise you. You wouldn't go through a time in, you know, you, we didn't promise you you'd go through your life without wavering. He didn't promise you you wouldn't have suffering and, and punishment 
And even, even evil come at you from, maybe it's not even your fault. But he did promise you, I will abide in you. I will remain. Because really your option is not to, to not have that. That's not an option for you in life. That's not the way life works. Your options are, one, I go through that on my own. Or two, I go through that and I go through it with God. Those are your only two options. The option of God will just deliver me from everything when I want is not an option for you. It doesn't work that way. If it was, Paul wouldn't have said, take this thorn away from me, and God denied him three times. If that worked that way, Job wouldn't have gotten through what he went through. Those are your only two options. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized this, is that when I was younger as a pastor, I, I, I would look at people and I would say, oh man, look at that ministry superstar. They're so amazing, gifted, talented. Look how God has used their Look how God has blessed them. And I was impressed. I was impressed. Or I'd look at people and I'd say, um, man, look at that theological genius. They know so much more than us. They, they have degrees. They have books. They, they just know so much more than me. I wish I could be like them. That's so impressive. And there can be some good things about, you know, both of those things. Or I'd look at people and just in general, you know, you're going to meet some Christians, okay? And this is what it's going to look like. You're going to meet some Christians, and they just seem to have it all. They seem to have it all. You look at their life, you don't know them, you know, because you don't live with them, but you're looking at them from the outside, and you're, you're saying, that person, has, they, they succeeded. They've got the wife or the husband. They've got the beautiful kids. They've got the house. They've got the car. They've got the bank account. They've got the career. They went to the right school. They seem to have this blessed ministry. They've got it all. They get to travel. They get to do all these things in the world, and then they get to do excel in all these areas of the church. I'm just so impressed. They have the best of both worlds. And you're going to meet people like that in the church from time to time. But you know what? That used to impress me, but it doesn't anymore. I can be happy for those people. That's fine. You know what impresses me more nowadays? What impresses me more is Christians who endure, who remain, who abide. Ministry superstars, theological geniuses, Christians that seem to have it all, that's nice. But what really impresses me is Christians who go through difficulty and they are there until the end. Are you going to be here until the end? Because you know what? There's a lot of Christians or people who profess faith that won't. A lot of them. And in a post-Christian world that we're in right now, you're going to see a lot more leave the faith and leave the church. And I would rather have Christians that are simply enduring than have Christians or professing Christians who are ministry superstars, theological genius, seem to have it all, and they, they shine brightly, but they don't endure to the end. I will take the professing believer who endures and remains and abides in God any day, any day. Now, verse 17, he says this, and 18. 
God's love is perfected on us. Verse 17. We can have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also, uh, as he is, so also we are in this world. Verse 18. And this is very familiar, but I'm going to tell you where people get the interpretation of this verse wrong. They say there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's stop there. Verse 17 and 18. Uh, what John is talking about here when he says love casts out fear. I mean, you can just read it for your own. Verse 18. There's no fear in love. Perfect fear casts, perfect love casts out fear. But then he says this. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 17. We can have confidence for the day of judgment. He is talking about God's love in the context of God's judgment and God's punishment. Perfect fear, perfect love, casting out all fear, has nothing to do with God's love helping you to overcome your fear of whatever daily things that make you anxious. That's not what John is saying here. He is specifically saying God's perfect love expressed through Jesus Christ casts out our fear of God's judgment and God's punishment for unbelief. That's what John is talking about when he says perfect love casts out all fear. It is the fear, the bothering of our conscience, that we are not right with God, our eternity is not set, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. We don't have to worry about God's judgment and punishment that will meet every person who dies in unbelief. And so he says, again, verse 20, um, verse 19, we, we love because he first loved us. We talked about that. And to conclude, verse 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. He ends with a negative dis, uh, definition of loving other believers. He's talked about loving one another, one believer to another. He defined it positively in 1 John 3. Loving other believers is sharing your goods with one another when they're in need, not closing your heart to one another. But now he ends by saying, if you're going to love one another, this is what it looks like to hate. This is what it looks like to hate. We don't want to hate our brothers. Um, How do we know that we hate our brothers because we don't have the love of God, right? We are not obeying the commands of God, verse 21. We don't uh, know God or have God's love, verse 20. How do we know that we are hating our brothers? Um, If you go back earlier in 1 John 4, uh, he talks about the role of the conscience. He talks about the role of the conscience. Um, he says, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, 1 John 3. Uh, right after he says, if you're going to love one another positively, share your goods and don't close your heart to one another. He says later on in 1 John 3, um, verse 19 and through 21, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, the truth of loving one another and living God's love um, and of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything 
Verse 20, well, uh, 21 of chapter 3. Beloved, if our own heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What does that all mean? It means this. You know that you're hating your brother when your conscience condemns you. That's it. We know. We're like, I'm closing my heart to this person. It bothers me. That's your heart condemning you. It's your heart um, saying you're not walking in love with other believers. Yeah, yeah, but I, I just, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to be in fellowship with the church. And again, this is not about missing every now and then. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about as a pattern. I'm talking about months and months where the vast majority, uh, we can't love one another if we're not in fellowship. I mean, I'll just say it too straight. You can't love other believers. They can't love you if you're not in fellowship. And if you're not here, if you're not in fellowship with other believers, the majority of the time, you're hating other believers. That's what he's saying. And your conscience should be condemning you. Now, it's a bad thing if that's happening, but it's actually a good thing if you listen to it. And so let's hear the words of the Apostle John. This is coming straight from God. This is not coming from me. This is not me saying, oh, come to church because we want to see you here. This is John saying, this is the way you will live out God's commands. If you are going to say that Jesus is Lord of your life, then love other believers. Let them love you. And if not, you're hating them. And if not, you're showing and your heart's going to start to give you doubt about, is this really real in my life? And you don't want that. So let's live the way of love. Let's acknowledge that God loved us. Let's have a proper definition of God's love through Christ living through us, him being the propitiation for our sin. Let's be thankful for the Spirit who lives in us, making all of this possible. Let's love, not hate other believers in the body of Christ, sharing what we have, not closing our hearts to them, not, not, being, in fel- not being in fellowship with them. And, uh, and this church will be the most loving expression of God in this entire area. And it'll be amazing what God will do. All right, let's pray together. Father, as we close together now, uh, may you just bless and grow us in your love. May we be reminded that the world does not love the way you command us to love. It cannot. It cannot because it does not know the source of love as we do. May the love that we have for one another as we open up our hearts to one another sanctify us, perfect us in God. And may Christ, who lives within us and uh, has been the satisfaction for our sin, through his Spirit, Lord, work in our church. May this church, City Bible Church, be known as a church of love, not of hate. And, uh, and we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's right, stand together, and we'll close in worship.